Welcome to the True Sight Podcast by Oracle's Elixir, your source for in-depth analytical coverage of professional League of Legends and the rest of the esports world. I'm Tim Magic Sevenhusen, and today we're talking to the lead analyst for FlyQuest, Joseph Sai Pomeroy. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Good to be here, Tim. So, have you had much of a chance to catch your breath after Worlds yet? Uh, with you know the time that FlyQuest had there, are you you already deep into off-season mode? Where are you kind of at in your cycle of competitive season? So I'm behind on the quarterfinals matches, but I still want to follow Worlds very closely and the roster moves and other things that teams do during the offseason. But for me personally, it's been like the first opportunity that I've had in basically since the between the spring and summer split to take a second and catch my breath. I'm still trying to fix my sleep schedule because I had to adjust to the players in, when they were in the Chinese time zone. So... I'm still a little groggy later in the days trying to fix myself, but it's basically the first moment I've had to kind of kind of chill out a little bit and focus on things that aren't just uh, work and prep. Yeah, I'm sure you don't get a whole lot of time for that breathing room. I know talking to coaches and GMs and so on, uh, you know, especially kind of at that level of the organization, they they say how quickly, you know, I had Mac on last week from Mad Lions and he was saying, you know, instantly, pretty much the moment they're out of Worlds, they're talking about offseason and, uh, and trying to get ready for 2021 right so i'm sure on the analyst level you get a little more opportunity to, to step back but probably still not much eh? yeah it depends i think um where depending on like how involved like the individual person is with like the org so i'll do like a little thing here that like i was with clg for two years and i was not really involved in very much of their decision making during the mm -hmm. off season whereas um, I have more of a, an open dialogue with players and staff at FlyQuest, and so that conversation definitely is ongoing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so let's start things off with with you know, maybe a bit of an introduction. Actually, would be the would be the right place to start here. I think you know you're somebody in the scene who there, there are certain coaches and there are certain analysts who I think are, are pretty well known and you know whether they had more of a content creation background before getting involved in teams or or, or after even during. Uh, some and then some that have kind of more flown under the radar who either don't seek out that spotlight or you know just maybe came in maybe a little later on in the the team staff boom and I think some of the some of the very first early entrants kind of got that you know first movers advantage in a sense of, of kind of getting attention oh this guy's a professional analyst for a team or whatever um, and I'd say in, in your case it's somebody who you know I hadn't I hadn't really come across you until more recently uh, you know, is one of the analysts you work with, uh, uh, Loyota, who, who's somebody who is fits more into that kind of category of having done some content creation, a little bit of a following there. And he and I have, have had our paths cross and, and he was really highly recommending that I speak to you and, and get to know kind of more about your perspective and, and, and has said a lot of good things about the work you've done with FlyQuest. So, uh, you know, he's given me some background on you, but for anybody listening to the show, who maybe isn't aware of, of kind of who you are, what your role might be, what your background is in, in esports. Can you give us a bit of a, a quick summary of, of your path to, to where you are now and, and kind of what you do for the team? So as far as background, I'll start with, um, I got my start with any kind of esports related work in 2015, CLG, toward the end of the year. Uh, maybe you recall, uh, I'm sure you, I know you've been active since that time. They put out a Twisted Tree Line challenge for people to see if they could um, like uh, finish a game as fast as possible. Okay, I actually do remember yeah. that. Yeah, like speed run, speed run the 3v3, yeah. 
yeah. And so I submitted one of the faster times. I didn't have the fastest time, but I explained the methodology that I wanted to uh, approach it with uh, very well. And so they gave me an interview afterward. And, and that and gave what, me... So I think some people listening to this might not even... I mean, Twisted Tree Line hasn't been gone for that long, but it hasn't been gone a bit. Can you just quickly give us some insight? What was your, your method for that? How did how exactly did you speedrun that mode? So if you're going to speedrun through Twisted Tree Line, the best champion for it was always going to be Olaf because of the steroids he has in his exactly kit naturally. What I was thinking. Yeah. And, and so everyone was always going to be Olaf. That's immediately what everyone came to and what I came to for a conclusion. And then... Um, I didn't really optimize, like, so the one that won optimized, like, farming the bot AI early in the games and getting enough gold to get, like, an early reset by, like, a heavy AD item and end the game with that. Whereas the method I was doing didn't really involve killing the bots. It was more about just stacking waves and then crashing large enough waves that you can end the game in on the second push that you do, basically. Hmm. And explaining, like, how I was setting up the waves to stack was, I guess, the part that gave me the leverage to get an interview so yeah that makes a lot of sense because wave manipulation you know menu wave management is a huge part of pro play right and even even mm -hmm. back then i think it's understood a lot better now than it was in 2015 but for sure it's pretty as important pretty important right cool yeah. yeah so from there you you worked with clg for a while yeah, so I started out as a build analyst, and I was given like specific things, like I would critique like the players, like builds. I think I got hired on with three or four other people that also had like very tailored jobs. And then over the course of like a year, I sort of moved into like a general analyst role where I worked more with uh, Zeke's at the time, mm -hmm. and interfacing with the players a little bit more, and took on a little bit more responsibility, a little more input on things like draft and stuff like that until the last half a year that I was with CLG, and this is um, 2017 summer, where I moved into a jungle positional coach role because they wanted to do away with their analytical positions in favor of like tailored one-on-one -on -one coaching positions. It's something else that they wanted to try within the org. And so I worked with Omar God and Dardoch that uh, for that split mm -hmm. in particular, which... The reason that I was considered for like the general positional coach role is that before I was even I even put in the application for CLG, I peaked in like season three and like low challenger as a jungle main, and ever since I've maintained like high diamond as like a level. And jungle is definitely the role that I follow the most as far as like competitive play goes. So from CLG, did you transition straight from there to FlyQuest, or was there something in between? There was a short break where I was considering whether I wanted to finish my schooling because I already have a two-year in accounting that I had done straight out of high school. And then I was debating on whether I wanted to go for my bachelor's or potentially CPA, or if I wanted to continue trying to chase like this like esports um, esports career. And so what I ended up doing for a little while was offering like one-on-one -on -one coaching via like third-party sites and. That was like relatively successful to the point where like it gave me a little bit of supplementary income, and I tried like a little bit of like brief like streaming of like different games and whatnot. But ultimately, when I saw like another posting for like a team looking for like an analyst, then I applied for it and I got picked up to FlyQuest last year initially as more of a data analyst role where I was taking site uh, taking stats from like Oracle's Elixir and comparing like the efficacy of like roles and like how that translates to those teams like um, like the ability for like each role to like maybe affect like 
the outcome of the game, how likely you are to get Rift Herald, how likely you are to get Dragon, these kinds of things. Cool. Which I don't make like the advanced stats. Like uh, I've seen like uh, you put up on your stat on your site, and I don't have the data science background to really support. But yeah, I mean, the, there's there there are whole different points of entry to that kind of stuff in terms of how complex you get with using the data versus how much effort you put into the interpretation and application of the data. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, it 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 requires different skill sets and different mentalities, different approaches to it. And I, I, don't think I would say one is more valuable than the other. I think the interpretation, if I had to lean anyway, the interpretation side of it and the application side of it is probably the most important. So uh, it makes a lot of sense that, that, you know, a team would have someone like you in there, you know, working with that, with whatever is available and trying to get the most value out of it. So that's great. What are, since you've, you've joined FlyQuest over the, the past, I guess, couple of years then, or, or, or a year and a bit, what are some of the, the main things that, you know, assuming you've kind of like developed more skill sets and, and evolved as, as you go, what are some of the main things that you've kind of learned being on this team? So the things I've learned being on this team is that I think one of the most valuable things that you can do as any staff member is to be able to interface with the players and coaching staff effectively and to be able to reach each player and make sure that they respect like your opinion on things. Some players will respect maybe your opinion passively or some players won't buy into it or some will almost demand that you challenge their line of thinking. And if you Mm -hmm. can challenge their line of thinking, then they will see stock in what you say, right? And I think being able to effectively determine how you're going to interact with different kinds of players with different goals, different viewpoints is maybe the most important thing that I can think of, like the player to player, like the person to person interaction is extremely valuable because in both teams that I've been a part of, it's very common that players don't have the highest opinion necessarily of even their staff. And then it's a lot harder to distribute effective information to these, to the people that you need to. Yeah, for sure. And I think some people might expect that to be more true of a coaching role rather than an analyst role. But, you know, the analysts have to convey the information. So, you know, I'm sure it, it's that much harder if the analyst has to convey to the coach and then the coach to the players because you have to, you know, the, the coach is never going to understand the work on the same level to, as the person who actually did the work, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's nice to, to have a team set up where the analyst does get to interact directly with the players. But then, you yeah, as you're saying, you have to have those people skills, right, uh, to to even be able to adapt to different communication styles and different mentalities of those players within your team. So uh, from the outside looking in, I I would look at this FlyQuest roster and say, I would guess it's probably one of the easier rosters to work with on that front. I I, I read a lot of personalities in them that actually seem like they probably relatively receptive. Is that accurate? Uh, I'd say on average, this uh, team is definitely pretty receptive to feedback and to things that I would present to them. And I can appreciate that they're relatively open for sure. Mm-hmm. Does in in your experience is there a noticeable difference between veterans and rookies on that front? I think that veterans more often already have an idea of what they should do in the situation, and so you need to challenge like the ideas that they already have, as opposed to the rookies. A lot of times will either blindly follow what you want them to do or they will follow it but not understand why it's necessarily the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and if they follow it without understanding then it doesn't 
it's not like full learning where they can't really apply it. Right. And they can't see the situations where, hey, this is an edge case <laughs> and you mm-hmm. have to be able to recognize it's an edge case and do something else or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, so in, in your role in FlyQuest right now, so that we can get an accurate picture of kind of, you know, what you do within the team, what are what are kind of your main responsibilities when, whether that's during LCS weeks, whether that's, you know, a tournament like Worlds, what are the, the primary ways that, that you contribute? So I'll preface by saying that despite the Twitter title being lead analyst, I am the only analyst that works with the LCS team. And so it's very uh, general, I'd say, what I do. I can't be particularly focused on a singular thing because I need to fill a lot of roles for what the team needs in different capacities. So that could be like uh, being a part of review when we are doing scrims that can be interacting with the individual players about like optimizations for builds, champions they should try, things like scouting for enemy teams, whether that be solo queue or their stage games, whether that be me interfacing with the players or acting as like a bridge for some of the players or a place for them to vent that's not necessarily at the coaching staff, like the literal coaches or at the other players. And then I also do like some like data collection from like our scrims and then the interpretation of that data so that we can make decisions about how we best want to utilize our practice and what we should be focusing on going into stage and each individual week. Cool. So a little bit of a jack of all trades in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so how much of that do you do in isolation versus, you know, sometimes getting input from, from other people in the org who might kind of filter data up to you or kind of contribute things that you have to synthesize? So at least for Worlds, uh, Brendan was a help because he normally works with the Academy team and he didn't have as many responsibilities after the Academy season ends, obviously. So he's been a help with things like scouting and, well, primarily scouting is like what he helped me uh, work on for Worlds. And then in general throughout the year, like I work with Curry and David about like the direction that we want to do like week to week, like team goals and what pieces of draft we might need to work on like shells and what actually works for us as a team, as opposed to what's good in a shell or what is good for other teams. Yeah, sure. So when you're working with the coaching staff like that, do you, do you tend to go to them with, with ideas you have and, you know, Hey, we should try this. We should think about that. Or is it, you know, how much is it balanced that kind of approach versus the coaches come to you and say, we have this question, can you help us answer it? So I think it's probably like three quarters of the time that I will come to the coaches with a concern that I have or something that I want to pick up in draft or an idea or a shell that I give to Curry or something that like a player brought up that I want to bring up and make aware. And the other like 25% is them giving me direction. And I think it's very uncharted territory for most teams to use analysts very effectively. And so it's almost imperative that any analyst for a team be able to create their own conclusions and generate their own work and find things for themselves to do that are productive or useful that don't, that they don't need direction for. Yeah, definitely being, being self-directed and that is valuable and and almost any kind of a role, but especially, and I imagine also the more remote you are, the more important it is to be, to be able to be self-directed in that and come up with things. Cause you're not going to just come up with things in regular conversation and, and, you know, frequent interaction. Right. Mm-hmm. 
I uh, do want to take a quick sidetrack uh, because terminology is something that that often kind of can trip trip things up here. We we hear a lot of analytical terms, um, and, and you're talking about shells. Can you give listeners a quick idea of, of what you mean by that? So when I say like a shell, uh, in a lot of cases that could be either, either like a shell of like a comp like a composition. So like a shell of a composition could be like if you have a control mage plus like um, a tank jungler or a damage jungler, right? Those could be like two different shells, but like a shell could be different champions filling the same role within a team, right? So within the composition. So you could take a shell and different champions can slot in and it doesn't really change the, the way that the composition would play or the way that like our team would play that composition. And so... Different teams are better at different shells of compositions, but I also loosely use the term just to refer to when we go over like draft scenarios because we'll make like a shell of like what a draft scenario will look like, and so sure. I'll try to be a little more specific when I use one or the other. But yeah, <laughs> cool. So let's let's talk about worlds a bit and, and about your experience there, the team's experience there. <clears throat> you know, the the first thing that that a team has to work towards is you know the the boot camping kind of the transition from what you were doing in playoffs to now you've jumped a couple patches uh you're you're going into a different format and a different set of opponents that you're nowhere near as familiar with how difficult is it to identify and adjust to the meta of a tournament like that while you're kind of doing this this kind of multi-week period of boot camping and and, you know presumably not scrimming against the teams in your own group at least for this world in particular I think that the adjustment period is not as hard as it could be as far as the meta is concerned because the meta was already taking the direction that I ended up at for Worlds late in summer and into summer playoffs. And a lot of the best teams in the world were already playing the way that we see everybody playing at Worlds now. And I don't think it's um, necessarily like a favorable meta for the way that we've historically played the game. But so it's mostly just uh we have to figure out which parts we can incorporate how we're going to deal with the parts we can't incorporate and what is actually valuable and what pieces have changed too much or what new options there might be as answers or Mm -hmm. just as yeah ways that you want to to handle ways that you want to approach it i think you know to to get a little more into specifics it, i think both you and team liquid seemed like in a fairly similar case where uh you know teams that tended not to play through the top lane right uh teams that yeah. tended to play more through mid and bot play more for dragon control and scaling uh you know it's it's oversimplifying a bit but um you know compared to you know what we see a lot from these lpl teams at worlds for, worlds, for example or a damwon or something that plays very heavily through the top lane more priority on herald than first dragon these kinds of, of things so uh, how much, when, when that's the case, how much do you, you kind of work on, well, you know, this isn't the perfect meta for us, therefore we're going to do this to kind of shift the things into our favor, or how much do you work on then, like, hey, we're going to try really hard to add carry champions to our top lane pool and, and see if we can move ourselves to the meta? I think there has to be, like, a mix, and not all of the carry champions necessarily need to be in your pool for you to be able to adapt to the meta successfully. You may only have to play a couple of the champions, like the most versatile, or at least have answers to the best options, 
or play the best available blinds and make sure you're setting up for those blinds in draft. When you draft in a way that enables them to pick these like hard counterpick champions, then you need to ensure that you're getting something else out of the draft. Mm-hmm. Or that you have already prepared one of those answers. So I think it's hard to swap from a way that you're playing for the bulk of the year. Yeah. But it's possible to do a hybrid style. Like if you if we would normally play a more ganking jungler like Karsa does, right? He likes to sit near his lanes in a lot of cases and he empowers his laners to get these massive lane advantages. Then Karsa doesn't have to become a hard farming champion, like a hard farming player, just because the champions in the meta are fit that role. Karsa still plays more toward his laners, even on these like farming champions. And so I don't think the meta necessarily fits Karsa the best, but he is still enable, able to play the way that he wants to, even if it's like a little diluted. Yeah, it's a little, <clears throat> you know, a little, a little different from maybe a little less flexibility than he'd have in his, in his preferable meta, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when you have kind of differences between your own players champion pools and the opponent's champion pools and kind of their maybe comfort level within the meta uh, how much do you factor that in so like an example being you know power of evil having a lot of creative picks and ability to pull out things that most people aren't playing how much does that kind of unlock your planning and give you uh, an, an opportunity to to kind of work yourself around the meta that way The creative picks can be particularly valuable if there are matchups that are blindable on the enemy side or that you know that the enemy highly prioritizes. So, But in a lot of cases, it's hard to find situations to play these picks, especially when the like in the mid lane example like top lane is either that you have to normally either blind and you can potentially protect with bands or you have to uh, pick it late in the draft when there are less options available and it can be more dangerous. So in a lot of cases you see at Worlds that like a lot of the mid laners have to blind like a relatively safe mid laner like Galio who's going to do his job of pushing and roaming, collapsing on side, Orianna or Syndra who are just going to scale, Syndra will get early prio. These kinds of champions are going to do their job independent of what they're really put against. Mm-hmm. And so I think this meta in particular is not exactly favorable for like mid laners that have like expansive champion pools. An example would be like Chovy, who has a he, who I I personally think he'd probably play like any champion in the in the game in mid lane yeah. to pretty good effectiveness, and he is stuck on I think like Set Galio, which are things that he normally plays, and Oriana, which he's not really played historically in the past two years, and they were perma banning Syndra in their games because they're not comfortable on it. So I think it hurt them as a team as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, and, and the other side, if you've got the player with with less less flexibility, and you have to work around that, you know, like we we saw you guys pull out a NAR, for example. Was that one that you had been kind of keeping in the back pocket as one of these like this will counter something that we know they're going to try? You know, it, it can it can gain prio. It can also you know manage weak situations, something like that. Like, did you have many of those kind of in your in your back pocket? There's a lot of champions over the course of the year that are fringe meta. And given the situation to play it, then you can always incorporate it. Even if you don't necessarily have the most practice on it, you might have to, especially if drafts get like yeah. really targeted. Uh, but you won't see these kinds of situations come up very often in scrims or even on stage, where it gets pushed down. 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be just the matchup. Sometimes like you have to pick like a certain damage type just for your comp to function. Sure. And so if our option at that point in the game is that we need an AD top laner and four of them are banned and you need something that can function to the enemy laner, then sometimes you don't even have to take... Sometimes you don't get the option of taking a great lane matchup and you just have to take something that makes the comp function. Yeah, because that's... I mean, draft is so incredibly complex, right? I think in, in, in some perspectives, it can seem like people treat it like a bit of a solved thing like oh they do this you counter with that here are the known things you know you just got to understand the meta well enough but it, it, it is so complex because it's it's not about lane matchups only it's also about like you said damage types it's about fitting your composition are you going to have something that has no engage and how are you going to manage that and uh, are you going to do you need to like use your last pick to get a bit of an awkward matchup but it gives you that team fighting cc or whatever it is going to be uh you know there are a lot of factors involved in that right and, and, and it does become a, a real challenge, which is why um, I think that's one of the, the big reasons people like talking about draft so much is because it's it's a game all in its own right. For sure. Uh, so coming into to to Worlds End and prep for the teams that you're going to be facing, in your kind of the way you like to approach things, how do you balance between prepping game plans that that fit with your team and what you're comfortable with and what you're good at? versus identifying ways to attack the weaknesses you see in your opponents or kind of vulnerabilities there? I think that you should start by looking to draft things that enable your players to play with some degree of comfort into the strengths that we already know that we've established as a team. And then you can slightly modify from there so that you don't have too many variables and so you can get effective testing on the things that you are changing so that you can change what you already know you are good at slightly to be able to react to what the other team will do or what you think that you need to respond to so if you're kind of scouting an upcoming opponent uh you know say you're you're going to be playing against you know top esports whatever it is uh, and, and you watch their games and you say, like, hey, they're they're not very good at covering their flanks with vision or, you know, we think their top laner's wave management is kind of suspect and, and it creates gank timings, things like that. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think it can be possible to look at that and think, well, then just draft this and, and attack it hard. And even if it's something we haven't really played before, you know, it seems like a great opportunity. But from what I'm hearing from, from your approach, you know, that, that seems like it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a tall task and you're more likely to hurt yourself than to help yourself by going too hard after a vulnerability, right? Yeah, I think you should have ideas when you approach each team. Like personally for top, I think that their um, bot lane plays weak side relatively poorly. They will not normally drop creeps at the turret when you threaten to dive, for example. They take a lot of volatile trades, even if the jungler is pathing to the opposite side. And so there's normally windows to punish their bot lane, and a lot of teams have had success punishing their bot lane like domestically in the couple months leading into Worlds. And so that is something that you can look to attack just by making sure that you draft something with volatility on bot lane or potentially like a jungler that can gank or a mid laner with prio and any of those things can help influence that and so you can but you that's like a small change that you can make just making sure that you enable yourself to punish the, the thing that you want to exploit yeah it's giving yourself the tools right the tools in the draft a lot is a lot of it to, to do that you know if 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 they have an ending it's a pretty classic chinese mindset that 
you know, we don't have to make the perfect call here because we can, even if we put ourselves into a 40-60 situation, we can make it 50-50 by outplaying. Uh, and and so if, if you do that and you you can use your draft to add a couple tools that turn it from, from a 60-40 on your side into a 70-30, it makes it that much harder for them to outplay, right? Um, definitely some opportunities there for sure. Uh, are there any other good examples of kind of insights you used to, to approach some of the teams you faced at Worlds? Uh, another one for uh, top offhand is that um, some people will say that like when top takes like um, explosive fights early in the games, like the level one that it took against us, which they were already not postured for, and then they ended up contesting late, uh, that is something that I think top will do in the vast majority of their games because they almost always contest you when you um, when they when they see what you're doing and they have time to like make the decision, they'll basically always contest you on it. And a good example is that uh, they have a game against like World Elite. It's like their second game back in summer at the end of the season, and their jungler is down a level with zero mana. Their top has a wave that he needs to crash into the enemy turret, and he it doesn't crash. He just leaves it there with like the wave like frozen against him, and Karsa runs into the river at half health with no mana. Their mid comes with no mana, and they fight three v three. And it is such a doomed fight from the very start, right? But they are so determined to fight over this crab 3v3, and their top laner's wave is just absolutely yeah. terrible. They get smashed, right? They, they, they get two for zero, they lose both crabs, and the jungle gap becomes enormous, right? And then the, basically the game is over, right? The game is basically over because not only did their jungler lose a ton, their mid lost something, their top lost something, right? But they basically always opt into these kinds of fights, and everybody on their team gets involved in it, and they get involved in it, and they make the decisions very quickly. So if you are have the slightest bit of hesitation in those situations, then they've already made the decision, and they punish you, even if it was a bad play. And that's why, like, it's very important to make sure, like, you're always prepared to contest. Like, if you know that you have a 70-30 on a side in the top, you need to be prepared to fight that 70-30, because mm -hmm. it's very likely that they will actually contest it. Whereas, like, if you look at, like, a Korean team, they don't give you the window, and the Korean teams are very hard to play into when they get an advantage because they give you so few mistakes that you can punish. You have yeah. to play extremely clean, and you have to be able to win like very pivotal fights in the game that they also are opting into, so they think that they can win it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is especially fascinating right now because so we're recording this Friday evening. Um, you know, we're we're about what nine hours out of uh of the series between Fnatic and, and Top Esports starting. And <clears throat> and that's something that makes me look at this series and I've said el elsewhere, you know, uh that I can you you have to look at this matchup and say Top Esports is the fa are the favorites, right? They're just so skilled, they're so good. They've come in as one of the the, the top teams for the entire tournament. But when they play that way, and when you've got a roster like Fnatic that does have, you know, quite a bit of skill and is more than happy to fight for stuff, right? Uh, Fnatic will flip with you. Yeah, exactly, right? You, you, Hillisang is the, the, the starting point of that, and it's something that he gets both praised and criticized for. But he's he's going to opt right in. You know, Bwipo is really smart about about finding those openings and jumping right into them. It's, it's one where you look at that series and say, even if you have a big skill advantage on the top esports side, a few of those flips go against them and, and go in Fnatic's favor, and this series could very easily go the other direction, right? A lot more volatile than, say, a damn 1G2 would be. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. I think that it's just hard to see 
a case where you can flip it so many positive times in like a best of five. It's definitely possible, but like obviously you're going to average out to a lot of top favored scenarios anyway. But they are definitely a team that is more likely to give up games within a series for sure. Just because they're probably going to take a couple bad fights throughout the series. And some of them they might claw back from because they will fight you basically on every turn afterward. They will, like, even if they're down, they're going to go contest that Herald as a five-man every game, right? And then if they're already down and they contest Herald as a five-man, they lose that, then the game blows up harder for them, right? And it can become so impossible for them to get back into games very quickly because yeah. they'll never handshake something away. Yeah, and, and, and not only is that the case that it, that it can become, you know, hard because of those, you know, the, the negative consequences of those scenarios being so significant, but in the meta we're in right now, comebacks are just incredibly difficult in general like we're, we're in a very snowball-y kind of a meta um which is something interesting coming out of na where we we did have a lot more scaling and comebacks partly because this is the type of team comp people were used to drafting and, and the type of style we played but um I don't, I don't think that was accurate of the global meta so much and then coming into worlds and seeing that you know the, kind of the global metal taking global meta taking over a little more we, we've seen a lot more of this. Like, there there are really only two games, I would say, at Worlds where there was a really meaningful comeback, which was uh, Gen G coming back against TSM, and then just last night uh, <clears throat> with in Game 4, JDG having a really big lead, um, which, and, and, and as you haven't watched that series, but Game 4, JDG has a, a really big lead and, and manages to give that one up with, a, you know, a bit of a scaling disadvantage, but also just execution and, you know, too much risk-taking and getting punished for that. But aside from those two games, this has been a meta where level ones are deciding games very heavily also there's a great example of that last night uh and in a lot of a lot of games like you guys benefited a lot from a level one against top esports uh we saw team liquid benefit from it i believe it was the win over g2 uh level one wins just deciding not completely deciding games but putting them very strongly in one team's corner uh and, and that actually kind of transitions into you know something i'd love to talk about because i think your team has had some really good creative level ones you know, throughout the year, and we definitely saw it at Worlds as, as well. How does a FlyQuest kind of level one play come together? Where do the ideas come from? So, probably about 70, well, somewhere from 60 to 80%, but average, like, we'll say 70% of the level ones are something that I prepared to the team as an option that we can do on the day, depending on their draft, our draft, and maybe other factors like that happen level one. The other be, like thirty yeah, percent would be um, sometimes players um, will come up with something during the game or something that they saw and they want to like uh, take advantage of it in that in that moment and they make the decision then. Um, the level ones like uh, Raptor invades in some cases are less prepped because those are champion specific and we've gone through so many permutations in so many cases like i work with santorin a lot on like what other regions are doing uh as every champion and every matchup and to know like when what the situations are best to do each level one which top lane matchups might be able to split if you do that kind of matchup like you can end up like forcing like splits which like could hurt the opposite side more i think we saw like a really good example of 
TL versus Suning in their group stage game where everyone was talking about the Draven was just genius into the Twitch, but it's not that the genius is... I don't think that's the case in that game. I think the issue is that TL has to flip the game at their red buff level 1 in that game because it is so much harder for TL to execute topside 2v1 than it is for Suning to execute botside 3v2 just because of champions. And so the fact that they didn't flip the game at level one red buff means that they lost basically all control of the early game and Bin got to farm for free while TL's bot lane got starved for 10 minutes straight. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing where if you have a really big skill discrepancy in, in either or both of those side lanes, you might be able to manage the losing mat losing side of the matchup a little better, you know, but but in in that case you're dealing with a pretty strong bottom lane into you know, I, I think a lot of people would say Tactical and Core Day were really good, but they're not, you know, the strongest 2v2 laning. They're not, you know, some kind of all-stars in, in, in destroying 2v2 matchups straight up. It was a little, a lot more about kind of playmaking and team fighting later on from, from that pairing. And again, on the on the top side of that, Impact is not known for being somebody who dominates lane matchups. You know, he, he also is very much more about making good choices later on, giving up the minimum, um, playing well in the team fights, that kind of thing. And so when when you have you know something to do with with understanding your own roster and the own and the strengths and weaknesses of yourself, kind of like we were talking about with the meta earlier, and, and you know adapting yourself to fit the the meta, but you can't completely reinvent yourself. You can't. You have to work with the tools available to you in your roster, right? And 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 having to to maybe make some choices that are a little bit harder, a little bit risky to to manage the the draft differences you ended up with. Uh, mm-hmm. Something that you have to definitely be aware of, right? Even not necessarily like at like the player level, but at the champion level, like I think it is disadvantaged for TL to take the fight at the red buff level one. But even if it's a 30-70, I think that you'll lose that game 95% of the time if you don't take it. And so a Chinese team would probably fight you there. 30-70, they would take that 30-70 because yeah. either they would recognize the consequence <laughs> for not doing it, or they would, I mean, in like Top's case, like they might not even like necessarily think that it's going to like destroy the game they might be confident they can outplay you later anyway but they might still just fight you on it right because they do think that they can contest you and so as the 70 side you should always take it but in some cases like if you are the tl side and you have lee and you have to gank top lane jacks and you just don't have the damage early or the kill threat and the enemy side is leona draven nidalee it's just impossible it's going to be impossible you you have to try and make something happen and so you're either going to have to like cheat a reset and like retake bot side or you're going to have to try and flip the game early so that they can't split the map from the outside i would say that that ignar appears to play a really big role in FlyQuest's early game creativity and level one planning how accurate is that you know for the parts of it that don't come from the coaching staff how, how present is his voice in the planning and execution of these early plays yeah, so the other like 20-30% of level 1s that we do, the ones that aren't like uh, necessarily pre-prepped, are normally brought about at the start of the game by Ignar, just wanting to do something, or maybe I'll give him information before the games about like things that he could look to exploit game to game, and then when he sees the situation, like he'll call how he wants to execute it, right? He'll follow through, and he'll make the plan, and... Sometimes he'll just see something that he saw in like a previous VOD, and then he'll act on it as well, even if it's not something that we necessarily covered. And I think like he can be a little impulsive in games with the way that he wants to like uh, approach it. But yeah, uh, Ignar is definitely a very creative player, and the way that he approaches like team fights later in the game on engaged champions, and the way that he approaches level ones, I think that he is always looking for those opportunities to get free advantages. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. 
do you um do you work a lot kind of with him to bounce ideas off each other or, or does the coaching staff or, or how much is that something that you let the player kind of go off on his own and and kind of unleash him to have that freedom so the way that i see it is that I should be arming the players with the knowledge so that they can make the best decision for themselves, like game by game, because draft will change, situations will change. People might not even stand in the exact same spot, like game to game, or even in like the same spot of like how much vision it shows, right? Like standing past the middle rocks of mid lane is a lot different than standing by your turret mid lane because of the vision that you show and the things that it allows the enemy team to do. So just giving Ignar or giving the other players like as much information as possible so that when they see certain things that happen at level one or in the game that they can then know what options they have afterward or what they should be thinking about afterward yeah that makes a lot of sense uh how much does does this change this ability to be creative or this ability to kind of uh look for opportunities how much does it change when you when your familiarity level with the opponent changes you know you, you play a double round robin in lcs and then you play you know, you play those same teams in the playoffs. You come to Worlds and you get, you know, two games against three opponents. Does does that, you know, change your ability to prep these kinds of plays very much? Is, does it become more instinctual? I think that it's better when you don't have as much information on the enemy team to have plays that you are confident in doing either as a response to what they're doing or as a general play like the Raptor Invades because you're not going to have as much information as we normally have in NA when we are scrimming the same teams repeatedly. We play them more and more often, and you get so much data on what these players are going to do in each situation that it's basically, you can almost like build muscle memory for like what you would do into these players in these situations. And you can't have that same kind of familiarity, like you said, with the world's teams. And so you need to be able to do things yourself or generate an advantage like maybe independent of the enemy team based on the composition, or in some cases, you can still find little ways to exploit based on positioning, but it's hard to predict exactly what teams will do when you haven't even seen them play in over a month, and they'll have lots of practice and may not be doing the same thing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Do you do you pick up many ideas from seeing other teams do things against you in scrims? I definitely put a lot of thought into, especially like level ones and jungle pathing that other teams do in scrims and that other regions do on st in their stage games. Like I try mm -hmm. to keep up with the major teams from each region, at least the major four, and then making sure that I know, like especially when new champions come into the meta, like Lilia, that yeah. that champion can really warp level ones, and it's really important to see what teams are doing as fast as possible so that you can make sure that you're taking advantage of it. Were there any teams um, you scrimmed against at Worlds that that really did things that that kind of like made you sit up and take notice and hey let's so, you know I was, I was even gonna bridge this without without you mentioning it. SOFM is a very interesting player. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> his pathing is extremely creative and at times like detrimental to what I think he could be doing, but. If you think on it, like you can normally determine why he's doing the things he's doing. Like he's normally trying to maximize the amount that he can deny you and contest you on. And so he can leave camps up for at times where like if you're aware or you had like the vision control for it, that you can punish him very heavily for it, or you don't lose anything at all, or he can even put himself at a disadvantage. But 
just how creative he is at changing his pathing past the norms to try and find these opportunities to contest you or to get one two camps here and there on like every clear is very very unique we've never i've never interacted or seen another jungler play the way that he plays and the way that his team plays around him yeah i'm trying to think back to examples of, of somebody else who might have had kind of that similar style that little <clears throat> you know that that flair to them i think a player that stands out to me would be, I think it'd be 2016 Fnatic when Spirit was playing with them. It might have been 2017. I think it was 2016. Um, and, and that was one thing that, that Spirit was really known for was, uh, you know, how many enemy camps he would take away, what size of farm advantages he would he would bring up. And, you know, he's not he wasn't the guy who would come in and enable his laners really. But, you know, working with the, the openings that lane priority would give him, um, really amassing these huge leads. Um, you know, I imagine there's some similarities there. But uh, you know, SFM is is you know now playing in a in a more modern era, uh, on a on a different stage, right? And and it's so cool to see uh, what he's been able to do, especially because he's been a player. Um, SFM has who, who's been around for such a long time, but hasn't you know been able to to step up on the international stage and really show himself off, um, and be able to see him be himself and show off his own personality in his play uh, on this stage has been really cool to see you know i think jungler might be the the position that allows you to express the most of your personality in that way would you agree with that yeah i think jungle is the role where you can take the most of yourself and uh from game to game into the game and then i also think it's the role that is the most prep based and the most like so a matchup between Santorin and Blabber might look a lot different than a matchup between like Santorin and Broxa because both junglers play different and they know that they play yeah. different. And so they will both compensate, right? And so other laners, I, I like lanes, I think stay a little more stagnant, but jungle matchups and pathing can change more significantly like with matchups. Yeah, there's a lot more opportunity to kind of hide information, to draw inferences from, I can't see them, but I imagine they're doing this based on what I know of them and the champion and what the laners are doing on the map uh it, it's a really fascinating role to study and i know there are a lot of people who who look at jungle pathing as like the number one thing they enjoy about league of legends you know emily randex talk about it a lot in the spreadsheet she makes just <laughs> jungle pathing is what she loves more than anything except for maybe score for kt rolster but <laughs> uh <laughs> you know that it, it is a really really fascinating part of the game and, and you got to work with you know arguably the best jungler at, at the very minimum top two in lcs this year uh, are there things that that Centaurin does with his jungle pathing or his jungle prep that that you've seen very differently from other junglers you've worked with? So, I think that Centaurin has a very clear idea when he enters the games of how to enable himself to get the best advantage for himself and what's most efficient for him. And because he knows what's most efficient for him, I think there are some times where we miss opportunities to maybe like punish certain volatility in lanes or to punish people that do the wrong thing, like the enemy jungler doing the wrong thing. Because I think that Santorin makes a lot of decisions assuming that they will make the right decision. And so he will make the best possible decision for himself. Okay. I do think that he is one of the... He might be the best jungler that I've worked with at generating his own advantage independent of the game state. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, a lot of <clears throat> that, that's a very valuable skill set because, you know, you ideally you want the jungler to be able to 
play around the lanes. You know, you've got at least one winning lane <laughs> typically in, in your comp is what you try to go for. Um, you know, either one winning lane and two scaling ones or two winning lanes and one scaling back up or, you know, I'd, I'd say going for three winning lanes and the need to snowball is a lot better than going for three scaling lanes and hoping they can't snowball on you. And, you know, the DRX it, I, approach of three <laughs> lane matchups when your comp doesn't work. Uh, with no engage and no comeback mechanics. Uh, but, you know, when you do have a game where even if the draft suggests you're supposed to be winning one or two lanes and it's just not working out, you know, something went wrong level one or just you're outmatched in skill and they're, you know, they, they know the matchup better than you, something like that. The jungler has to be able to react to that. Because in the lanes, kind of as, as, as I think you're, you're suggesting, you know, you have to play the matchup out with what's in front of you and, and what the game situation is in front of you. In the jungle, you have a lot more flexibility and options. You can path to different areas. You can gank. You can not gank. You can play for vision. You can, um, you can play to deny the enemy jungler, whatever it's going to be. And you have to make all these choices uh, based on really what's unfolding in front of you. Uh, a lot less mechanical in that sense and a lot more cerebral. So uh, when you do have a jungler like Santorin who who is really smart in that way and, and can find ways to make the best of you know bad situations, that's something that, that is just so valuable. And, and I think we uh, we can see that play itself out in different ways, different junglers, different times. You know, I think you, you look at some of some of the players who have been great junglers in the LCS in the past, um, you know, Spence Garen being able to really read the enemy jungler when he was, you know, like last year I would say that was his best thing was being able to read the enemy jungler and counter his plays and just control, you know, being able to manage a losing lane and get them through into the mid mid game and so you, the entire team could take over. That's a really valuable skill set. Or, um, you know, the blabber kind of being the in in some ways the opposite of that, being able to recognize where he has an opportunity to do something and stepping into it uh, and and attacking that opening getting himself an advantage knowing his team's going to back him up things like that uh but the impression i get is, is santorin is really more of a mix of all of those things and can, can read the situation and do whichever one is best at the time i think santorin can struggle when the situation is very far from what the game would look like in theory so let's say like the level one is so skewed that our prio side can't get prio and then we want to trade, but on the trade side, we also make like a bad trade. We make a bad trade, like in the individual yeah. lane, and then being able to gracefully accept that you're going to take a deficit is something that I think a lot of players struggle with, and I don't think any jungler is immune to. And mm -hmm. that sometimes, because of things that are out of your control, you're going to hold a larger deficit than you wanted to, or even that than you should in the matchup, and it's going to play out different for the rest of the game based on things that were out of your control earlier. I think that jungle is a role where the players can very easily get frustrated with laners, and there's a lot of disagreements that can happen based okay. on... Because the jungler has to normally pre-plan two to three minutes in advance, like what they yeah. want to do and how they're going to be doing their route. And so if the laners don't hold up their end of how they were going to trade, whether they're going to get pushed or not, whether the lane's going to be pulled, vision that the enemy can drop or that they can drop, then... Obviously, the jungler feels slighted because he did his side, even though it's just PvE, and the laner did not do their side. But their side, in that, in that period, it should be harder because it's PvP and it has more variables. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. You know, I think there's there definitely a lot, of, a lot of things the jungler has to anticipate. And, and if they don't play out, you know, uh, in the ideal form, you know, what, what are you going to do? How do you react to that? And that's something where... Uh, just having the raw kind of mechanical play and, and, and instinctual play can help you sometimes navigate those and, and maybe being willing 
being being less afraid of hey i'm falling behind i'm gonna have to try something it's not supposed to work but maybe it will and that can help you kind of find that comeback or deal with that bad scenario more when you if you are more of a more of a kind of a cerebral player if you're more of a planning player you're like okay <laughs> the thing that i was supposed to be able to do is no longer available to me and this other thing i'm going to do is a 25 percent chance to work which is terrible so i'm not going to make a bad choice but then you just kind of talk yourself out of anything right yeah i think that's a place where we've ended up before and uh i definitely think that lucas is more of a planning player and he benefits a lot from um, the two things that I think that I work on the most leading into a lot of our games are things for level one and things for early jungle pathing, because the first five minutes of the game, I think, are mm -hmm. by far the most important parts of the game. And when armed with a lot of knowledge, I think that Centaurin makes a lot of really good decisions for himself and what he wants to take advantage of and what his options are. And then if things are to go very far astray, then it can be hard to stabilize the game. And harder than like some teams who are more willing to just take that flip, take that thirty percent, and try and force themselves back into the game. I think there are a lot of junglers. Like there's there's a handful of junglers in North America that will take that flip, and but there are some that would that would never right. And I think that Santorin will in most cases try and try and get himself back through the game organically, and then wait for the opportunity to come that doesn't look like it's a flip. Right. Yeah, and, and depending on meta, that can be more or less of a valid approach, right? Like in the <laughs> current meta, it's extremely hard if yeah, you, you, you fall behind. Right. Like, yeah, it can be it can be very hard. So I think that we've gotten a little bit better later in the year at like uh, figuring out the situations where because uh, you can see earlier in the year and even like last year that we'd have this issue where we would bleed out of games without really contesting things. And I think we've gotten a lot better in summer and at worlds where like if the game is getting out of our hands that we are more willing to contest to fight to just try something before the game just keeps getting out of hand because for the past couple of months the meta has normally been that if the game is getting out of your reach then it doesn't come back right you can't wait for the enemy team to make so many mistakes that you get back into yeah. it in most cases yeah you can't count on having you know ruler in your bottom lane to you know, have your entire team behind against TSM, but he's just going to go ahead and he's picking up kills anyways and he's massively strong and, you know, you get that one mistake and he just destroys everybody. Like, you, you don't always have a ruler on your team, so. <laughs> yeah. I will say it's always an interesting thing that happens at Worlds where sometimes you can plan something and you can plan out how matchups normally go and then sometimes at Worlds your perception of a matchup can change because you play against players that play the matchup so much better than anyone that you played against regionally. And so sometimes your perceptions can change of how something can or should be played or what your options even are to react to it. Or in some cases, in like some matchups, like you can get player gapped rather than like champion gapped or, or whatever. Like you, you can get player gapped. It, it, it's, it's definitely possible. Yeah, and I think that's more likely to happen on the international stage uh, where you've got these, you know, superstars from korea and from china and whereas like you know it's not that we don't have really amazing players in na but you're so much more familiar with them that you already know from so far out going into the game this is the way that they could potentially try to player gap me and so you've, mm -hmm. you you're so much more ready to work around it i think uh whereas you go to the international stage you're you're working from a default kind of position of 
you might know, hey, Chovy is an amazing player, but not having played against him, the specific ways that he's amazing and can can take you down, you know, might be less comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I think, you know, th- this has been really interesting to kind of hear from your perspective, you know, the way you guys prepare for things, uh, some of the ways that, that your team has worked and, and that you've contributed in that. I do want to, before we kind of jump out and, and uh, take a, a listener question here, um, you know, Damwon is the other team. You guys played against Top Esports. You took a game off them. Damwon is the other team that's really been in that conversation as favorite to 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 win Worlds here. Did you guys scrim against them at all? We did not scrim against uh, Damwon in particular, but we scrimmed against most other teams at Worlds. Um, I personally believe that our scrim matchup against Damwon would likely be very poor. I think we are more of a stage team than a scrim team. And some of our players don't take the practice as seriously as we could. And so, I guess, especially against a team that is as focused on getting their early advantages as Dem1 is, I think that it would, in some ways, almost be unproductive. Yeah, I guess there's a balance to be struck between, you know, you want to play against the best, right? Uh, and, and learn from them because they're the best. But if they are... Not not necessarily that they're so much the best because they're just better than you, but like the ways that they are the best, kind of aren't something that you're gonna learn from. Like if they're just gonna blow you away in the first ten minutes every game because of who they are and the way they play and the style of practice that you do, yeah, then then I guess that's not gonna be useful. Yeah, there's uh, it, it's been documented from like the C9 players this year, but for example, like they were like smashing all teams in like scrims to the point where I think like uh, C9 was. Um, messing around a little bit in their scrims with like their champion picks and the mm. way that they were playing the games. And then it becomes um, sort of degenerate practice. And then it's also very demoralizing for like the, the other team, right? Yeah. And then also for the other... happens for, for teams to choose not to scrim against C9 or for C9 to say, hey, you guys, we're not learning anything, we're beating you, so we're not going to play against you and, and kind of reduce their own set of teams to practice against. I think when you are within like your own region, there are a limited number of like necessarily like valuable practice partners. So if you are Cloud9 and you lose too many high level scrims, then I think it is a very serious detriment to like the level that you're going to be able to maintain, just like uh, for us. So you have to make sure that you cannot lose too much of that perspective, and, or you can fall out of like tune with like what is strong, what is meta, especially because. Even in like different scrim groups, like at the same time, there can be completely different metas, especially on like new patches where yeah. two different sets of teams have completely different priorities. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it would it probably have to be very severe for you guys, for example, to opt to say, "Hey, we're not going to scrim against Cloud Nine anymore because they're they're playing in a way that isn't useful to us." Because you know <laughs> that would be when when there are only maybe three or four teams at a high enough level to really push you. Removing one and especially if we're tar- well, like let's say we want to target our practice or draft a certain way on a day, and we know that the way that C9 plays or drafts will not be like useful to the way the thing that we're trying to practice, then it can. There, there are definitely times where a lot of people complain that, like, you know, uh, why would North America teams or players or any region like not scrim like a certain team? And there's a lot more nuance to it where you might not want like players to be 
demoralized from like a certain day, especially if like you know going in that you're not going to be like practicing against like the stuff that you wanted to target anyway. And so why would you practice against something that's not going to be realistic and not going to give you valuable practice for what you're trying to do? Yeah, were were you guys uh, an org that that tried to make that work with in-house scrims against your academy team, or are you one where you found that wasn't really an approach that made sense? Because I've definitely heard on both sides, right, that hey, you know, we can have the academy team try to we can we can ask them to play a certain style to help us learn better. Um, you know, we've got a little more control over what they do, but also on the other side, you know, definitely heard the academy team just isn't good enough, and we don't learn because they don't they aren't enough of a challenge, so even if they play a certain style that's really helpful to us, you know, it's just not on the right level. Where did you guys fall on that? I think it's hard for academy teams to give tailored practice to a LCS team because the academy team normally isn't at a high enough level where they can target what they're doing in the games effectively and challenge you in the games and, like, do things properly within, like, the compositions that they're being given. So I think, like... Uh, some teams do targeted practice between their academy teams where they'll basically draft for both sides to play out like mock drafts. And I think that in a lot of cases that will set your academy team up for like failure in those blocks. And I don't think the LCS team will learn a lot from it unless it's already the way that your academy team would draft. Right. I think that we struggled in... Um, some of the playoffs because other teams had more competitive academy teams than we did. And so they had other options for scrims, whereas we might have to take days off and spend more time prepping blind. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So let's, uh, let's step back a second. And, you know, I do give opportunities for Patreon subscribers at uh, patreon.com slash Oracle's Elixir to submit questions for the guests in advance. We've got one question here that I think is, is pretty interesting is something that I think I was kind of hoping to talk about anyways. Uh, so Angus Lockhart asks, asked, uh, in your experience, what's the balance between VOD review and stats analysis for an analyst when, you know, when you're prepping for something, uh, from what I can imagine, it's, presumably mostly VOD review, but is you know, how much of a place is there for stats on the team side versus stats being something more for for kind of viewers and entertainment? I think as far as for prepping for an individual team, the more important stuff is normally VOD review, and that's what you should focus on. Looking for patterns that a team has with warding, level one, whatever it might be, how their jungler uh, does things, or just like weaknesses, things that you can exploit, the way they set up for around like objectives, these kinds of things. The stats, I think, give context to how a team plays, but you need to be looking at the individual cases and why like the stats are the way they are. And it's, I think stats are very valuable outside of an individual preparation scenario like if you want to see what successful teams are doing then i think you should take stats into a very heavy consideration for like the direction that you may want to take your team or things that you may need to work on or that other teams are more successful or how they can utilize certain resources in draft or certain players that, that they have even this yeah yeah for sure um and, you know, one of the things that I always like to, to, to say is that stats is something that can give you that initial look and help you direct your VOD review more. 
Um, they can help you know what to watch for, you know, which aspects of a game to pay the most attention to, things like that. Um, and they're also really good for validating things. If you watch a bunch of odds and you start to have an idea, right? Uh, oh, I think this is a really important thing about this team. And then you can go to the stats and just make sure that it's not, um, that it's not, you know, counter to counter to what you're, yeah. you're uh, you know, it, it's not offsetting that these things don't conflict with one another. And if they do, then maybe you have to go do a little bit more, um, you know, try to try to see why those two things don't agree with one another. Um, you know, both both valuable data sources in their own way, but for sure, if you have to kind of lean towards one over the other or kind of make a choice between them, the VOD review is always going to tell you more with more nuance, with more depth. Uh, yeah, I think the VOD review gives you more actionable things that you can follow up on from game to game as well. Whereas like stats is like hard to make actionable, right? Like just because other teams are successful at doing something doesn't mean that your team can replicate it it doesn't mean that your players are able to replicate it and it doesn't mean that you're you know, that you can as successfully and that's always something that you need to take into consideration because just because damn one gets every objective doesn't mean that we can get every objective right drx has very poor early objective control for example right despite their dominance in the region they have some of the worst objective stats of almost any team at worlds and when you look at their games, I think it's because they, as a team, prioritize very heavily, like getting good resets on their laners, um, making sure they maximize their farm, especially Pioshik and originally was a player that really wanted to maximize like the uh, uptime that he had doing camps. The players on that team in general are very farm centric. They want to make sure they never have to take like a bad reset or trade tempo in exchange for like an objective. Right. And so it's definitely something that you can look to target in like your games against them, for example, that you can attack the fact that they will give you early objectives if you're willing to drop a little bit of CS for it, right? If you're willing to drop a little bit of tempo in a lot of cases, they will seed these things to you, right? Whereas like Damwon, for example, will trade that little bit of tempo, that little bit of farm advantage to take these objectives, right? And then they will snowball so effectively with these objectives that if you watch like most of the times that DRX plays against Damwon, that Damwon gets like first herald, second herald, first turret, first three dragons, and then at some point Dragon X is down and they're forced to fight. And their farm advantage doesn't matter as much anymore because they've lost turrets, they've lost control of the map, they've been starved out of other resources, and they now are forced to try to contest areas where it's impossible for them to set up because they don't have control first. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense, and that's I think it's a really good example of a way that you can find something. You know, often, when, especially when you're scouting team stats, you want to look for something that is far off of the norm, right? Something that's really high or something that's really low. And then that gives you a great entry point to go into looking at that team and seeing, okay, why is this number so high or so low? Um, and, and see what it means and, and then what you can do about it. But um, yeah, you, it is, it's definitely not a case where you can just like, oh, they always, they have this stat that says this specific thing. Therefore, we're going to draft this team comp and off we go. Like, it's, it's definitely not anywhere near as cut and dry as that. I think uh, one other area that, that's pretty interesting, and I'm curious if you're involved in this much or at all, is is using stats to try to hi- help identify player value, either for existing kind of veterans or identify new players that, that you could go after. And, and since we are coming to offseason, maybe we'll just kind of wrap up with this, you know, um, are, how much you might be involved in, in using data to try to help make roster decisions going forward. You know, FlyQuest does have some some free agent questions to, to look at. Um, can't just assume we're going to run with the same five for 2021. I don't know exactly 
what my future will be or my capacity within the team will be. And so it can be hard for me to necessarily answer that when I don't necessarily know like how much uh, influence or what my role is in that case. I think that there are a lot of metrics that help you paint the picture of how valuable a player can be. And in a lot of cases, the eye test can be is, the eye test for players I found is normally accurate, but I recall looking at games for like Power of Evil, for example, and Power of Evil has a, um, I forget what the stat was. It's something from Pure Sight, actually. And it's basically like how much, uh, I think it's gold spent percentage difference, right? And then, so how much like a team wins uh, relative to how much gold advantage they have, right? So how dominant are they? Right, or how dominant are they not, right? And so when I looked at it for like more of like individual players, then Power of Evils is very interesting because he as a player has a lot more comeback potential in games where he should not be winning the games and does win the games. And I think that's because he as a player is very creative and very, very strong at like late game team fighting. And so in these cases where you get to the point later in the game, Power of Evil will win you games alone that almost no other mid laner will win you. Because he will find creative angles to team fight. He will find these situations where he can 1v5 a fight late in the game. And he makes very good use of like the resources that are like given to him, right? And so that is something that at eye test, I would not have thought that he is 1v5ing games late in the games, right? But when looking deeper at it, there are a surprising number of games where Power of Evil is able to deviate from the norm more than any other mid laner of a large sample size that I had looked at. Cool, yeah, that, that's a great example. So thanks for bringing that up. And, and I think Power of Evil is one of these players that that is very interesting and, and, and people really enjoy watching because he doesn't fit, you know, a, a, a typical mold. He's not a Jensen-style player who, you know, play to dominate the lane and control later in team fights and, you know, play a very kind of straight straightforward start-to-finish kind of a game. He's someone who, you know, does kind of work around the edges more does some surprising things, not just with his champion pool, but the way he approaches situations and games and so on. And yeah, he's a, he's a he's a great player to watch from that perspective. Uh, I think we're gonna we'll, we're gonna wrap it up there. Really appreciate uh, the the insight that you've shared and kind of getting to know you and your role a little better. It's given us some interesting things to look at for worlds going forward, based on some of the insights you've shared there, and also you know some things to to think about and to try to notice uh, going into next season with with the players that you've worked with and the insights you've given us on them. Um, you know, Centaur and Power of Evil Ignore, especially that is some players who are who are really uh, really fascinating to watch. So thanks again for joining us on the show today. What's the, what's the best way for people to follow your work, Sai? Um, the only thing that I post on for like social media occasionally is uh, on Twitter at Sai uh, underscore Law. Yeah, we'll make sure I'll the link to that is in the in in the uh, the show notes as well uh, on, on the recorded version and. Uh, you know, maybe people can poke you there and ask ask for more of your insights there, and uh, and see if they can get you to interact a bit. <laughs> yeah, I will say that uh, even though I don't necessarily ever post on Twitter, and I'm very inactive on social media in general, um, I have a personal email in my Twitter that anyone that wants to is open to message me. I've had people ask me before how I got started in analytics or esports, or just asking me questions about like what they should be looking to do, and. I have never ignored one of those. So if anyone wants like that kind of insight, they want the information or they just want to talk about like these kinds of things, then I'm always open. And 
I I will respond if you reach out personally. It's just that I don't normally make like these sweeping sweeping comments outward, you know. Yeah, for sure. Thank you to everyone for listening. You can uh, you can support the True Sight podcast at patreon.com slash oracleselixir where subscribing can get you some benefits and ability to ask questions for the guests and some other things related to the oracleselixir.com website as well. And you can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts or go to anchor.fm slash truesight and find some other platforms you can use as well. Uh, also, you're welcome to join the Oracle's Elixir Discord server, server where we love uh, talking about games live while they're happening, discussing data science, uh, and just uh, hanging out, having a lot of fun there as well. Links for all of these things are going to be in the show notes as well. Thank you again to everyone for listening, and we'll catch you next time.